Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all, to feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hello and welcome back to Romaniacs, where we're all born-again fans of the wisdom of hereditary rule after the House of Lords stepped up to act as the real official opposition to Brexit. Yes, it's time to end the disastrous democratic experiment, because thanks to the Lords, MPs will now get a vote on Britain remaining within the European economic area after 83 Labour Lords defied the whip. This was the latest of 14 defeats for the government in the Lords, and it left both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn's Brexit strategies in tatters. It was all part of the course and a week in which the Foreign Secretary described his own PM's flagship solution to the intractable customs Union and Irish border problem as crazy. And among other things, we learned from Robert Peston that Ireland has been undermining the British government for a hundred years, which is probably news to the Irish. So it's just another week in the upside down. I'm Dorian Lidsky, <laughs> and I've got two of our regulars with me. Ian Dunt is the editor of politics.co.uk, and that man you often see face palming on Sky Papers. Hi, Ian. Hello. We said you achieved a life goal this week when you were quoted on Have I Got News for You? Oh, oh, wow, that was... What shortage of material led to that? (laughs) You're you're a dick. So thank you. (laughs) No, that was actually genuinely quite lovely. Because also as a show, obviously, like I grew up, just like anyone who's sort of like a political journalist watching Have I Got News For You? And that show, I mean, it's pretty cheap because they haven't changed that set at any stage in the intervening years. So actually, it it was actually genuinely quite weird to see that take place. And I had a nice warm glow for approximately 25 minutes, which was like a world record for me. (laughs) And you were particularly impressed by Gavin Williamson's idea of building our very own Galileo system yes. with a Union Jack on it. You called him a ham-faced cretin. <laughs> um, why is that? What's wrong with this fantastic idea? Uh, well, I mean, it involves replicating everything that we've already invested in in order to accomplish absolutely nothing except to do our own version of something that is already being done somewhere else. It's almost like <laughs> it makes more sense when countries cooperate <laughs> in some way and that by sharing resources and expertise, you may be able to advance your cause quicker than you will on your own. But I know that that, at the moment, is a very controversial message. So it's just a great metaphor where they basically have to, to replicate what's already been done just so we can say we did it ourselves and put a union jack on yeah, it. Yeah, well, but also we did loads of it. I mean, loads of that yeah. is down to us. But, you know, also, I mean, you just need to look at the man to know that nothing of any sense is going to come out of his dreadful mouth. <laughs> True. Also, with us, we have Naomi Smith, Chief Operating Officer of Best for Britain. But, of course, she's here in a personal capacity. So no asking people to sign up for your mailing list this week. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> right. Naomi. What's the address where listeners should definitely not go to sign up for the mailing list? <laughs> Bestforbritain.org forward slash join. <laughs> so don't do that. We had great fun with Femi from Our Future, Our Choice, on the show last week. Uh, did you know John Redwood running away from debating with him on the Andrew Castle show? Yeah, basically Femi made John Redwood go, oh, fuck. Um, so Femi and John were both invited to call into the Andrew Castle show on LBC. Um, Andrew kicked off by asking Femi to open, and he did this brilliant thing about how the Tory party is still completely divided two years on over what to do around Brexit, um, and uh, reminded us all that, even the government's own data shows that under all different scenarios of Brexit, Britain is worse off than it would be just staying in the EU. And so making the point that no wonder uh, the, the Tories were still split. So then Andrew um, 
segues to John Redwood and asks him to respond and John refuses and he just sort of says no. I was invited on here to be interviewed about our future trading relationship with Europe. I am not going to debate. Um, but the, the brilliant thing was is that Femi was, record, was videoing himself and so you can see Femi's brilliant reaction to this <laughs> that he's now, he's now put on Twitter. So, you know, absolute gold. Uh, bravo, Femi. And we're delighted to have as our special guest this week, Caroline Lucas, MP for Brighton Pavilion since 2010 and co-leader of the Green Party. Hi, Caroline. How are you? Hello. I'm very good. Thank you. Caroline has to head off early to get back to the Commons. So we're going to talk to her before the news. But before that, here's an important message. If you like your Ramoning live and uncut, then we are delighted to announce that Romaniacs will be heading to the Stoke Newington Literary Festival on Sunday the 3rd of June. Yes, we've decided to get out of the metropolitan media bubble by doing a show in a part of London where the streets are paved with hand-foraged wild mushroom pesto and the streams run free with turmeric lattes. The Stoke Newington Lit Fest is definitely the hippest literary festival around. We'll be doing a show with a special guest, Martin Rosen, The Guardian's eyeball-popping political cartoonist, and there'll be drinks afterwards and exclusive merch on sale. Tickets are going fast and they're available at stokenewingtonliteraryfestival.com. That's Sunday the 3rd of June at 6pm. And if you can't make it to Stoke Newy, then remember, you can always support Romaniacs via the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Pledge a few pounds every month and you'll get smart mugs, t-shirts, bags and a priceless sense of being on that right side of history. And you'll get first dibs on tickets for our live shows as well. Go to patreon.com slash RomaniacsCast to find out more. We're going to talk about the local election results later, but you had a pretty good showing this time with more councillors than ever, sitting on more councils than ever. Um, I know a few people who normally vote Labour, voted Green this time for primarily Brexit reasons. How much of a factor do you think that was in the green showing? I genuinely don't think it was that big a factor, actually. And right. They might kind of push me out the studio because that's maybe not <laughs> not the um, not the right answer. But um, I mean, clearly for some people, it, it was a factor. But essentially, I think around the country, people are just fed up with one-party state councils, whether that's run by Labour or Conservative, and just want some more troublesome voices on the inside who are going to ask the difficult questions, who are going to shape the cages till they rattle and, and, and really just stand up on the side of, of residents who all too often kind of get left behind as the, as the parties thrash things out. So I think this was a, a vote around some of our key policies on everything from air pollution through to more affordable housing, but I think it was also about getting some voices on the inside of those councils where at the minute um, they are pretty much one-party states. So can you sort of explain in a nutshell the, the Green Party's policy on Brexit and the response to the, to the referendum and, and perhaps another referendum? Right. Well, it's probably no surprise uh, to people to know that the Green Party was very much uh, in the <laughs> Remain camp. Mm. Uh, I'm very, very disappointed by the, uh, by the referendum result. And indeed, if we have time to talk about it, the actual referendum campaign itself, which I think was an object lesson in how not to run campaigns. Right. Um, but uh, now we are very much involved in the, uh, in the People's Vote campaign, the campaign to, uh, to have a, a vote on the final deal. I was talking about it on Question Time, actually, the other day and, and, and it was so extraordinary that, that I was in Bury St Edmunds and, and a proportion of the audience, not all of them, but, but a proportion of them were kind of booing this idea of having a, a say on the final deal and it does seem quite extraordinary really that this is actually an extension of democracy. This is not denying the first vote, it's saying an awful lot has happened since that vote happened in, in June of uh, 2016. An awful lot more information has become available, a lot more things have become clear 
And it's right that we have that opportunity to look at the, the deal. And if we like it, well, all by, by all means, let's, let's go for it. But if we don't, then I think we should have the right to stay inside the EU. Because, you know, to me, it's a bit like having been promised the opportunity to move to a, a wonderful mansion, you know, in the countryside. And then you actually find you're being shown a, a hovel with, with dodgy plumbing and no heating and so <laughs> forth. And, and you are in, within your rights, I think, to say, hang on a minute, that's not what we were promise. That's not what I voted for. I want to say on this. So this is basically about giving the people back control. The Brexit rumour mill um, has told me that it was actually you who coined the term uh, people's vote. Well, I'd like to claim it. I'm not, I'm not entirely well, claim sure. It, claim it, claim it, 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 it now. It's me. OK, my natural, my natural um, modesty uh, cast aside. It was me. I did it. Brilliant. And I think that effectively um, makes you the leader of the fight to stay in. Fantastic. Um, uh, and so my sort of question to you is, uh, you've got the Green Party leadership um, election starting over the summer. Are you going to be restanding to co-lead the party? Um, I have no reason to think otherwise at the moment. There are lots of discussions to be had. We've just had the, the local elections. I need to sit down and talk with Jonathan. So all of that's um, still up for grabs. But what I can promise you for sure is that the Greens are going to be in the forefront of, uh, of absolutely leading the People's Vote campaign because it really, really matters. There's so much at stake. I mean, I, I come at this not only from the economic angle, and I know everyone bangs on about the jobs and the economic damage that will be done by Brexit, but to me, and having been in a, a member of the European Parliament for 10 years, having been on the inside as well, I, I still remain so committed to the idea of the EU as a peace project. I really do. Same. I still yeah. find it immensely moving to be you know, in Brussels listening to all of those voices, all of those languages, and recognising that, yes, of course, those meetings can be incredibly tedious, and yes, there's too much bureaucracy, and you, know, you can sit and criticise it as much as you like, but essentially getting around a table and trying to solve your problems through talking with one another rather than bombing one another seems to me like a pretty good idea. It's very controversial of you. I, I know. <laughs> Particularly today, actually, unfortunately, with yeah. bloody Trump and the Iran deal and all of that. <laughs> there is a point, I think there's a point where liberals just reach where they don't even swear anymore. It's like, <laughs> bloody Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing more to be said, really. That's it. <laughs> and your experience in, in Brussels, did that... Um, I mean, there are obviously many Remainers uh, are not uncritical of the EU. What, yep. what did you come away thinking? I mean, obviously very pro, but what did you think at that point before the referendum yeah. geared up um, sort of needed to change? And perhaps even had it been changed earlier, could yeah. it have made a difference? No, well, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I you know, it, clearly the EU is cumbersome. It is in many ways, you could argue, not as democratic as it should be in the sense that the... European Parliament doesn't have as many powers as the uh, unelected commission, um, that uh, it's not as transparent as it should be, it's not as accountable as it should be. But, you know, if that was a reason for leaving, then we'd all be leaving the British government because the British government mm -hmm. isn't transparent or accountable. Exactly. But I don't think we're just, you know, suggesting that we abolish the British government, although actually from time to time it might seem like a, <laughs> quite a good idea. Tempting. <laughs> so, so, I mean, I wasn't by any means um, uncritical, as you, as you say, of, of, of what the EU was doing wrong. I, and, you know, I think it, the, the, the policies of the EU as well, not just the, the processes, but the policies are quite interesting in the sense that it always felt to me like there was this real battle. But on the one hand, you know, the single market was about more neoliberal globalisation. It was about an economic model that as Greens we don't much mm -hmm. like. But at the same time, and this is the kind of the, the many 
contradictory things that are true at the same time, it also was our best way of guaranteeing key social and environmental rights because mm. by having that single market, you needed to have a, a, a playing field, a level playing field of minimum standards when it came to workers' rights or environmental rights. Otherwise, you'd have countries undermining one another to, 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 to get um, competitive advantage. So ironically, through that economic model that we didn't much like, we ended up with a system that... Um, that actually did guarantee us some of the best environmental legislation in the world, some of the strongest social protections. And from a green perspective as well, of course, one of the reasons that, that I'm in favour of the, of the single market is because along with it comes freedom of movement. And I'm not afraid to say that I think freedom of movement has been a bloody good thing. Hear, hear. Let's hear, hear it for it. You know, the yeah. idea that you can go and work and study and live and love in 27 other countries, I think is a wonderful and precious mm. gift. And it's one we should be expanding to other people, not trying to close it down and... For young people in particular, I think it just feels like such a betrayal that those of us who've you know, benefited from that extraordinary opportunity mm. now basically pulling up the ladder. One of the saddest things I saw was actually in The Observer on Sunday when there was an article about how the EU was about to give interrail passes. Did you see this? Yeah, to, um, to young people. To, to people as they turned 18. And for the UK, you know, that was basically so they could go and say goodbye to the EU. I mean, how sad is that? But what a great idea, in a sense. They were doing that to lots of different countries, a way of, you know, enhancing people's understanding and appreciation of, of mm. other cultures, other countries. It seemed like a brilliant example of what the EU is good at and what we're going to lose. You touched on uh, the fact that the Leave um, campaign sort of very effectively uh, labelled the European you know, project as a, a bit of a sort of neoliberal conspiracy, um, and and certainly you know the metropolitan elitism of of the Remain campaign probably probably still now um, has a ring of truth to it. Um, so, do you ever worry about lending your lefty credentials to a movement that still contains a lot of centrists and liberal conservatives? And how do we better make the case for staying in Europe to left wing politicians? Well, just look at the alternative. You know, if you were saying to me that the alternative of a neoliberal EU was a wonderful UK that was going to have, you know, sustainable economics and social justice as its heart. OK, well, that's quite an interesting debate to be had. But that's not. We can see from the policies of Liam Fox and Boris and Jacob Rees-Mogg, you know, they want to get out of the EU so they can make the UK even meaner and leaner mm. competition. They want more neoliberalism. They want more deregulation. And again, it's one of those ironies about the EU, but I believe that the EU is actually our best protection against that kind of dog-eat-dog -dog competitive race to the bottom, which is, you know, the glint in mm. Jacob Rees-Mogg's eye. We're, we're going to come back to, to the stuff around sort of state aid, probably because we're going to have to talk about Labour and the single market after uh, the Lord's vote. Yeah. I mean, do you have... Do you feel much give when you talk to sort of Labour colleagues on, on that sort of issue? I don't know how many conversations you have with those who signed up to the sort of Corbyn assessment of state aid. Do you find it quite easy to make the sort of left wing? Yeah, and I think I, I want to pay tribute to a, a great organisation called Another Europe is Possible, which set up itself up deliberately to speak to uh, those who might be from a kind of Lexit perspective. In other words, people on the left who are leaving the EU because it is too neoliberal. And Another Europe is Possible um, has done some fantastic research and fantastic work demonstrating, in fact, that, as you would expect, um, the EU doesn't prevent us bringing rail back into public ownership. Otherwise, Germany and France would have some problems to answer. You know, mm. that, that, that many of the kind of myths that have grown mm. up need to be challenged. It is not the case mm. that the EU stops us doing those things. And if there are 
occasions where you could say, yes, the EU is an obstacle here, then why aren't we joining forces more effectively, you know, across the EU to work together to to address those issues? I mean, there are there are growing movements, I think, across the EU who've seen what has happened in the UK and who are who are deeply worried about that and recognising that the EU needs to change. And, and I think it does. And so alongside the argument that I think that the UK should uh, should stay inside the EU is, I, I don't think that stops us from saying, but at the same time, working with our EU colleagues, we do want the EU to change, just as we would want the UK to change. All institutions are in a process of development and evolution, I guess, and something as ambitious as the EU, which, which it is, and an extraordinarily ambitious project to come together, share sovereignty for, the, for a common good. Of course, there are going to be things that doesn't get right. But the idea that we're going to be better off in a world that is increasingly dangerous by the day by just simply taking our bat home, I, I think just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Is, is there any shift from the Labour guys that you can see? Can you imagine any scenario in which the Labour leadership shifts on, well, the, sing think, on the single market? Well, I think they've already shifted quite a bit, haven't they, on the customs union. And I think, you know, particularly some of the debates around uh, Northern Ireland and what would happen with a, a hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic has concentrated minds quite a lot when it comes to the customs union. And I, I could entirely imagine enough pressure being brought to bear on Labour which could push them towards the EEA as, as we you know we'll, we'll come mm. to that I guess later about the Lords um, vote last night but 80 rebels is, is pretty unprecedented I think mm. in the Lords from, from, from Labour so 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 I, th I think mm. there's everything still to play for here that, that we could still shift them because you know is, is Jeremy Corbyn really going to instruct his MPs to walk through the lobbies with Jacob Rees-Mogg this is not going to be a good look um, and, and I think when that's allied to facts that, that people begin to see in their own communities that, um, that there are fewer nurses in the NHS because, because we know that already the numbers of nurses coming in have gone down by about 90%. We haven't even mm -hmm. done Brexit yet, mm -hmm. but the numbers of people applying. Uh, we, we know that our public services are struggling. We know that our businesses mm. are, are deeply, deeply concerned. I think when you add all of that together, the pressure on, on Labour is going to be very, very big. And our listeners can really help with that pressure. I mean, this weekend, so on the 12th of May, there is the big TUC, the big union march happening. Um, and, you know, I would certainly encourage people, even if you're not a union member, to go along to that because the Labour leadership's eyes will be on it. And if they can see people walking around with hand-painted signs saying, you know, save our NHS, we're worried about, you know, the number of, of nurses that are leaving, you know, not I'm, I wouldn't advocate going with, um, you know, EU flags and things like that, but I think trying to send that message home that actually the very people that ought to be voting for Labour at the moment aren't because they're cross about yeah. the position on Brexit. Mm. And you know, you're a very prominent Remainer. Journey Jones of the Lords is uh, not. Well <laughs> 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 <Will> spotted. <laughs> the, um, the irony is she's about the only person in our party that takes that position and she's in the Lords, which is gets, unfortunate. So does that... In uh, that perspective, I should I mean, say. Labour obviously does have... I mean, no, it's, it's by no means a 50-50 split, but there, it, there's definitely a kind of like a significant minority of, of the Labour, um, you know, sort of membership and support. Um that is uh, that is sort of pro Brexit. I say significant. I mean, it's it's smallish, but it's 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 important. Um, among the Greens, do you? What's the sort of range of debate there? Do you think there is? Is there like a strong Brexit contingent? Or? No, they really. I mean, genuinely, right. there really isn't. You probably count them on the fingers of one hand. It is the case that, that Jenny Jones, our member in the Lords, has has long been a, a critic, particularly of some of the issues I was talking about earlier around the accountability and so forth. And we don't agree on it. And and our party policy is very clear. And she is in a very tiny minority. Having said that, she did vote for the uh, for the EEA option last night. 
she's been very alive to most of the sort of Remainer criticisms of that bill as it's been going through. It's not as if she yes. hasn't lost her critical faculties through Brexit. She's still, you know, scrutinising the government. She's not Kate Hoey herself. No, no. <laughs> Perish the thought. That's the most terrific metaphor. Yeah. And, um, I mean, obviously, for, sm- for smaller parties that you can build in, in the European Parliament, you can build sort of coalitions, you can achieve more. What did the European Parliament allow sort of Greens to do that while being underrepresented in Westminster, mm. they couldn't do here? Well, the first thing to say, of course, is that proportional representation in, in, in I think, all of the other countries in, in, the, uh, in the European Parliament meant that there were an awful lot more Greens there in the first place. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we were an absolutely fundamental, taken-for-granted part of the political architecture, if you like, mm-hmm. made a huge difference. There was about 50 of us um, at the time when I was there. So, so that meant that you could, you could swing majorities. You know, your, your role is very different um, to being a, a lone green here, where where clearly I have I've yet to find an example where I could uh, claim to have swung a majority, but um, <laughs> but I think the culture of the politics in in, in Brussels was and is different. I mean, I think there is much more cooperation. You, you don't have an executive in the same way. You've got the Commission, and then you've got and then you've got all of the uh, MEPs. But I think there is a culture of working together much more closely. I think it's interesting that in European politics, the word compromise isn't a dirty word. You know, here in British politics, if someone says, well, that's a compromise, then that is a real criticism. That means you've sold out. Whereas I think in European politics, it was quite interesting that a compromise, in a sense, was more of a, a mm. noble effort to find enough common ground that no one feels as if they've actually had to eat too much humble pie, which, which is, you know, quite a positive thing so that's very different and, and just the really confrontational you know pointlessness of so much politics at Westminster is, is is pretty depressing where where really what you're trying to do is score points rather than you know develop arguments so you you mentioned electoral reform at the start I mean Ian loves to talk about tariffs I love to talk about electoral reform um, and uh, uh, we've heard a lot about you know new centrist parties and I think there is a very real risk if we get a soft Brexit that uh, you know pro taking us back in centrist party emerges but isn't there a sense of arrogance that that party could achieve something that the Green Party hasn't and you know they're sort of failing to understand that, that the significant part of why you've not broken through in more areas is our totally broken voting system. And I didn't even pass you any money to say yeah. that that's, that's really nice, thank you right. Semaphoring, no, yeah. broken voting <laughs> system No, I mean I, I unsurprisingly completely uh, agree with you and just a little snapshot that our election result in 2015 when we had over a million people voting green, if that had been under an, uh, a proportional system that could have um, delivered over 20 23, 24 MPs, and that really would have changed people's perception. I mean, if I had a pound for every time... Well, it would have changed the makeup of the government. That as well. We wouldn't be a coalition with the DUP. Exactly. Um, But if I had a pound for every time someone said, um, you know, I'd I'd like to vote for you, but I don't because it might let this party in or that party Mm. in. I mean, we are all in this straitjacket of having to usually vote for the least worst option. And, and, and yes, you're right, there's lots of discussion about, about centrist policies and you get the sense that, or politics rather, and you get the sense that um, people are looking at Macron and thinking, oh, well, let's, have a, let's have a British Macron. But the point is, with the electoral system that we have, you're never going to have no. a, a British Macron. He could not have done what he no. did in France in this country. And, and mm. it's time people work up to that. I would say, that, I mean, the Green Party obviously has sort of, you know, policies across the board. It's, it's, not, it's purely sort of environmental concerns. But on that front, what are you worried about in the event of, of Brexit? Which we are going to stop, clearly. Yes. But, yes. If, but if, slim chance, chance we, we didn't. didn't. <laughs> um, 
what you know what what do you sort of what do you worry about maybe what re- regulations yeah. would come down and like yeah that. well uh, you know there's 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 big directives like the habitats directive which looks after some of our most precious green spaces or the birds directive all the water directives all of these really are the crown jewels in, in britain's environmental legislation they basically have much higher standards and crucially much stronger sanctions if you uh if you contravene them than our traditional domestic legislation does so at the moment, the government says, well, don't worry, we're just going to cut and paste it, stick it all in the UK statute book and everything will be fine. And one, um, if they do that, then there's actually no guarantee they won't roll any of that back. So it's not a great guarantee. But two, there is at the minute no enforcement mechanism to make sure that that legislation is actually properly monitored and and that sanctions are applied if if people the government in particular contravenes it so right now you know you'll know that on issues like air pollution in london it was the threat of fines from the european court of justice which finally um concentrated the government's mind to do something about air pollution and we need an agency with the same kind of teeth if brexit happens to be able to do that in in the uk um, now, Michael Gove is kind of saying, well, yeah, we'll try and bring forward such, an, such a, uh, an institution. But even if he can be trusted to do that, and that's quite a big if, we know it's massively controversial in, in the cabinet and, and certainly in the party and the Conservative Party more widely that people would see that and are seeing that as a, as a block to, you know, all of this unfettered, deregulated expansion that they're hoping that Brexit is going to unleash. So there are going to be some huge battles there first to make sure that environmental legislation is properly brought across to the UK statute book. But crucially, that when it's there, it isn't just zombie legislation that's sitting on a statute book, but you can't actually enforce it. We need those bodies to to monitor and and crucially to be able to enforce, including fines and including things that will concentrate the government's mind. Are there any particular areas of vulnerability in terms of sort of free trade agreements? Obviously, you think of the US, but also in terms of China and its demands might be, for instance, with energy in terms of doing an FTA. Are there any particular areas there that you're concerned about? I think you're, you're right to point to energy and, and, and I guess the other areas are ones that have been pretty well rehearsed before as well when it comes to what the future might be for our NHS if you've got companies, again, going back to the US example, or trying to get their hands on some of the more lucrative parts of the NHS. So I think there's a big risk to our public services. I think there could indeed be risks to, to energy um, and, and then all of the concerns we've already heard about in terms of the, of the food quality, agricultural quality and, and so on. And earlier this year, you wrote a three-stage plan to stop Brexit for an obscure blog called politics.co.uk. <laughs> <laughs> um, stage one was to retire elite figures from the campaign and get some new faces in, which has happened. Stage three uh, is getting the Labour leadership on side, which we talked about. Stage two was to um, tackle what you called the underlying issues behind Brexit and to curtail the power of the nefarious global elite. What did you mean what by earth? that? What on earth were you on when you wrote that, you asked me? Um, it's so terrible. Just bad editing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think what I was trying to get at was that um, the people who voted, some of the people who voted Leave, voted Leave for very good reasons. You know, they, they were exceedingly angry and rightly so with successive governments and an, and, and an economic system that's been pursued by successive governments which pretty much has depended on there being winners and losers. And I think what I was trying to say was that all of our excitement around the campaigns with Best for Britain and the European movement and Open Britain and all the others, and we're all sort of talking about how do we put the pressure on the Lords here and how do we get those amendments there? Actually, what we also need to be doing is really organising at a very grassroots Mm -hmm. level as well and listening to people and being really receptive to the very genuine 
concerns and anger, massive anger, I think, that led some people to think that actually the way to solve their problems was to vote for Brexit because they perhaps thought that things couldn't get any worse because things were pretty bad. And I think I think that sense of, of really recognising that means changes on the ground. I mean, it was quite interesting that just after Theresa May was um, elected, she she stood on the streets of, of, of Downing Street and she was talking about Brexit and she herself said that, that, that the Brexit vote was a message about how the UK had to change, how we changed UK governance as well as EU governance. And I think there's some really important questions about about who it was in the U- in, in, in the UK who voted for Brexit and um, Anthony Barnett's done a lot of interesting work on this about mm. how he would say that Brexit was was uh, you know quite an English phenomenon. I mean, I know that Wales also voted, but but, but less overwhelmingly. But you know that there was something about towns in particular in in England who who felt they they didn't have a governance structure. They didn't feel their voices were heard in the way that perhaps you know if you've got the Scottish. Parliament, then you've you've got a you've got a voice through through the Scottish institutions in the way that you don't in the English ones. So I'm rabbiting slightly, but I I think there's something there about governance representation, voices being heard, and I'm worried that in all of our focus on amendments and so forth, we we, we miss out that grassroots. Bit. But of course, you know, because of all the time taken up by Brexit and the kind of yeah. the you know the airtime, but also the kind of legislative debate time, um, it seems like all these problems that that say Theresa May. Uh, in retrospect, was merely paying lip service to in that speech. Um, there's sort of no time to address yeah. them. You could presumably make a long list of things that you would try and fix to make yeah. people feel more empowered, to make it seem as if society was fairer. Um, and yet nothing happens. I think that's true. And, and again, I mean, the, the, the ironies in this whole thing are, 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 are multiple. But but yes, the kind of the, the bandwidth, the, the, the capacity of government to, to address these things, even if it wanted to, is overwhelmed really by by so much attention being paid to Brexit, but that doesn't stop those of us on on our side of the of the debate and the organisations and the politicians who are campaigning for a people's vote. That doesn't stop us from validating those views and and saying that we hear them and and pledging to do whatever we can to make that part of our campaign to say yes, we we, we do care about the hollowing out of of areas of this country. Following, you know, the 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 kind of industrialization we've seen and so on, that that, that we we do stand side by side with people who are struggling to get on the housing ladder or or struggling to get decent public services. I mean, we differ by saying that we don't think that it was the EU that was the cause of the problem, and by at least listening and, and hearing some of that more, I think we'd have a better opportunity of of persuading some of those people that that Brexit is not going to be the answer to their to their problems because what worries me a little bit is that we spend so much time worrying about the national picture the amendments the thing to get the people's mm. vote we haven't actually borne in mind that the people might just say well bugger that no, I'm going to do it again yeah. we, you know so so let's make sure that if we get the people's vote when we get the people's vote we also get the result that we need from the people's vote because uh, Tom Brufato, um, uh Britain for Europe is very passionate about saying that if there is a people's vote one of the things that you need to say in the campaign is something about what you would you know what you would like to see done to fix some of these problems yeah. you know that yeah. you, you can't That's just sort of ignore the underlying them causes that vision of our yeah. version of the sunny uplands not, yeah, it's, yeah. Not, yeah. it's not it's not oh, status quo, quo. No, that's, exactly. that's no, the thing exactly. to basically make it seem like yeah. a change and that's platform. why the, the different faces and the different voices and hopefully the different demographic are, are just as important as as the messages in a way this is a very different campaign it must be um, thanks Caroline I know, I know you have to go now thanks for coming in what are you up to next 
Um, I am going to um, speak in the data protection uh, debate, uh, in particular concerns around what happens to um, people who are perceived to be immigrants, who might not be, but who might be perceived to be, and what happens to their data. So I want to get onto the floor of the House of Commons and fight that battle. Brilliant. Thanks for coming in. Take care. Thank you. Angry feelings are disagreeable. Look at the fear. Our very way of life. Look at the anger. We're under threats from extremists. I am your voice. Why is the world so angry? And where is anger taking us? Do you think Trump would have been elected or Brexit would have happened if 2008 had not happened? I think it's unlikely. Yeah, me too. If rage is the opposite of reason... I am no, not... No, 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 How do we get reason back on top? I'll be talking to different people about anger and what it's doing to us. You can listen to Anger Management with Nick Clegg on Spotify, Acast, Stitcher and all major podcast providers or download it at audioboom slash channel slash Nick Clegg. Before we get started on Newsbelt, what do we think of our close parliamentary friend and previous guest Heidi Alexander quitting Parliament to be Sadiq Khan's Deputy Mayor for Transport in London? Uh, she was a very prominent Remainer and doing a lot of good work on the ground. Is this a, a loss for the cause? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a loss. It's one less vote you can absolutely secure counter. But she was one of the few MPs who knew what the fuck was going on. I mean, mm. she actually knew her stuff. And she remember when she came on the show, she had this sort of thing of like, well, I used to work in all these other sort of bits. And now I basically just talk about Brexit the whole time. And she bothered to learn about it. So... I've got to say, like, I love my city. I'm happy that she's in charge of, you know, stuff in it. And transport's one of those areas in the mayor's office that actually you have actually some executive Tangible power there. Power, yeah. yeah. But nevertheless, I, she was incredibly useful mm. on those mm. on those benches. And I kind of wish she'd stay there. I mean, I think to lose Heidi from Parliament is generally bad news for the whole country, um, let alone mm. just us, because she's an excellent MP. As to whether or not it's totally... Bad news, obviously that's going to depend on who gets selected. At the Lewisham um, local election count last week, there was quite a bit of chatter uh, between some of the the Greens, the Lib Dems and the Women's Equality Party uh, people about stepping aside to to endorse um, an avidly stop Brexit candidate. Um, Now, obviously that should be a local matter for the local parties. Uh, of, of those major parties to, to decide rather than any kind of top-down thing. But basically, yeah, I mean, it is a very safe Labour seat. So um, the best we should hope for is that a pro-Remain candidate gets selected. Now, let's get back to the House of Lords and that epic defeat on Tuesday night. It was the latest in a series of knockbacks for the withdrawal bill, which now contains the following provisions that the government definitely doesn't want. It commits the government to negotiate EEA membership. It has to prepare for customs union membership. The exit day of 29th of March 2019 is revoked. We're committed to the Charter of Fundamental Rights. And, of course, there's that meaningful vote in the Commons sometime in October. It's brilliant. (laughs) And to add to Theresa May's woes, there's the endless Tory battle over her customs partnership idea under which Britain would collect import tariffs on behalf of the EU, the Father Ted option, in which those duties would just be resting in Britain's account. (laughs) The Brexiters are furious about the customs partnership. It produced the most serious threats of moves to depose May since the general election. And Mogg has suggested that Johnson would be more aggressive in negotiation if he were PM. Ian, starting with the Lord's defeat, uh, how significant is that? I mean, we asked a similar question last week, but now there's more of them. Yeah, I thought that this was, this was, I thought a huge surprise. I mean, I didn't, I don't think anyone was really thinking it was going to happen. None of the political journalists I spoke to, I don't think any of the people that organised uh, that amendment to go forward were thinking it was going to pass. That is a lot of lords defying the Labour whip to 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 stay out of the whole thing. They weren't whipping against, but they were basically whipping to, to abstain. Um, 
That's a pretty big deal. I mean, it's a pretty big deal that half of the sort of uh, Labour peers on the backbench of the Lords are prepared to defy the leadership. It's a pretty big deal that you've got enough Tories who are doing it, who, you know, that this would pass. The question then is what happens now? What happens now is it goes back to the Commons. I, unlike the customs union vote, which I think really can be won um, in the Commons, I don't think this can be won in the Commons. And the reason for that, you know, is two words. It's Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn is prepared to whip his MPs and is prepared to support customs union membership. He's not prepared to do the same thing on the single market. And if he isn't, I don't think he'll... Um, I mean, so earlier, sort of Caroline was saying he's gonna, he, he would whip them into going to the same sort of lobby as Jacob Rees-Mogg. I don't think he'll do that. He'll just say he's going to whip an abstention, which is, you know, gets you out of that kind of obvious symbolic trouble, but ultimately adds up to exactly the same fucking thing. What it does get us now is... And this is, these are small pickings, but they may eventually become quite useful, is, look... He can fucking own it then. Because if that's the way that he's going to do it, if he's going to ultimately support hard Brexit, then the light can shine on him as clearly as humanly possible and let him go out and explicitly, instead of hiding behind his bullshit and nonsense, actually make sure that the Tories are able to deliver hard Brexit. Because that is a consequence of what he's doing. The only real change here now is the spotlight can be on him fully as he engages in that project. Yeah, he really does need to to own it. The kind of cowardness and evasiveness, which is largely uh, a key feature of his leadership, it's just, I find it quite sickening now. <laughs> it's just like, make a decision, stand by it, accept the consequences, be judged according to those consequences. And maybe this kind of forces him further into that corner. At least with Blair you had a sense that he projected himself as, oh, I'm so clever, clever. <laughs> you know, I'm so clever, clever, and I'm quite cynical, and I'll do what it takes to win. Instead, with Corbyn, you get the sort of messianic, oh, it's just straight-talking, honest politics, and we're just about our principles. And in fact, all of the machinations are exactly the same. So good, so fought it to the front. Now, there are arguments at the moment. They talk about the state aid stuff, which we've addressed many times before. I mean, it doesn't really work. It does, you know, it, it does stop you from doing a real 1970s top-down brown-suited trade union sort of national rail runs everything thing. It does, you know, the really stale monolithic version of nationalism of nationalisation. It does, but even radical social democracy is possible. Left-wing social democracy is possible under the state aid rules, just like Thatcherite neoliberalism is. And we have always pushed on the neoliberal end of how that operated and are now complaining that we weren't allowed to go to the other end when we were the ones saying that everything had to be neoliberal in the first place. So they're going to make that case. The case doesn't really stand up to much. When you ask the Labour guys now, over and over, they keep on sort of saying, well, look, we'd be a rule taker and not a rule maker. The truth is in the EA, you do have quite a lot of little bits of options. They're not perfect. And if you're dealing in primary colour politics, they're not going to satisfy you. But you can control things a bit through the EFTA court, which has a bit of an independent life. You can control things a bit by reaching above the EU and trying to affect the global web of standards, which turn into regulations, which actually Britain is in a good position to do because of it's basically a world leader in standards. And you can affect it a bit at the point that the regulation comes down and is implemented at a national level, where you get your civil servants to go in and exercise that control in the way that Norway does. There is an argument for the fact that you can shape the rules. The thing is, they're not open to hearing that argument because they're ideologically committed to the kind of hard Brexit that we're seeing. It's also worth mentioning, again, that we are not just negotiating with ourselves. So even even if we get enough Tory rebels and we do get Labour to you know vote the right way on the EEA and the Commons, 
the EU has not said that EEA membership is on offer to us or open to us. And, you know, lots of sources in Brussels and various EU leaders have said that they like how the EEA functions. They think it functions very well. And that means that they really don't want it to be disrupted by an annoying Britain coming along and, and trying to, you know, muck up how it's how it's been functioning to date. I don't think it's a given, but I, I, I the... the I think it's pretty clear that they would allow... I mean, even if you look at sort of Barnier's flowcharts, they usually say, look, this option would be there if Britain gave up on the red lines. And when we did the December option, they sort of said... Actually, when they came forward with the kind of FTA, the the free trade agreement they would offer us, they said, this is based on your red lines. If you have new red lines, then we can offer you different things. Mm. So I think that there is a thing that... Of course, by the way, we we still need to get it past the EFTA countries. So Norway, Iceland and Liechtenstein. And actually Switzerland, because even though they're not really in that arrangement, they're still in the EFTA bit, would have to admit us in... What's in it for them? Well, okay, so here's the thing. So uh, on the one hand, I think for Norway, that's quite a hard ask because it has a leadership role in EFTA that it may not want to give up, although Switzerland might rather enjoy Britain coming in and just shifting them around a little bit. However, most people in Norway suggest that Norway would not veto this, that if it was going ahead, it would be going ahead with, with a sort of bit of EU support. And Norway is not the kind of country that's going to stand up there and go, like, we'll, we'll fuck with this. What it might actually offer by having a country with the kind of economic and political weight of Britain into that kind of basket is give EFTA and the EEA agreement countries a bit more heft when it comes to trying to get back some kind of democratic control over regulations with the, with the EU. So all of the, you're right, it's not, it's not a given, but I, I certainly think it's doable. It's a hell of a lot more doable than trying to set up an entire new customs and regulatory infrastructure by the end of 2020, that's for sure. Mm. I mean, I've got a slightly different take on everything that's happened this week. Um, I think what the Lords have been trying to do is to help find a solution for the government on the Northern Irish mm. border issue, mm. which, you know, is is a problem that nobody seems to be able to solve. Um, and, you know, the truth is, if you want to stay in the customs union and in the single market and to have sovereignty within it and to have a say over the rules and even veto some of them, then we, you know, we just sort of have to stay in the EU and, and, and this sort of creep, creep, creep towards soft Brexit is actually really worrying me. Um, because I think we could end up in a situation where the meaningful vote is effectively a soft Brexit option Mm. um, uh, that would be very, very difficult for all of those MPs who have said, well, it's got to meet these six tests or, you know, whatever, whatever. The the bill that gets put before them is is pretty similar to that. But these are also the same MPs that have been going on about, yes, we need a people's vote. And I think you could end up in a situation where you get soft Brexit and no people's votes. Um, and I think that's a big risk uh, because British people are smart. You know, that would be effectively us walking away with all the pay and no say, which just isn't a sustainable course of action. And, you know, do we really think that the Daily Mail and the Reese Moggs of this world are going to keep quiet during a transition period where we're in a soft Brexit scenario? I don't think they will. I don't think they will stop. And I think we'll continue to have this horribly divided country um, with, with almost nobody being happy. And so, so Soft Brexit will, yes, delay economic disaster, but I think it also probably delays a hard Brexit. Um, mm. And and so, you know, you know we, we have to get, um, you know, we, we are Romaniacs. Everyone listening to this is a Romaniac. We're fighting to stay inside a reformed Europe. And that means getting your MP to vote down the meaningful vote so that we can have a mm. final say on the public. So, uh, yes, it, it, you know, I'm pleased to see the Lords, you know, showing their muscle. But I'm also a bit concerned now that we are getting very comfortably 
walking towards the soft Brexit. It's interesting because, you know, the funny part is, as those allowances come in, there will be more... If, if there is progress there, there'll be more divisions in, in Remain. Yeah. Because I because yeah. I instinctively don't agree with anything you just said. My thing is, yeah. you, you try... Whenever presented with any kind of un- uncertain scenario, I want to get the best possible worst outcome. I want to get rid of the most pernicious danger. So you get rid of no deal. When I assume Brexit's happening, so you get rid of the most dangerous parts of it. Stay in the single market, stay in the customs union. And that quite conservative strategy is very different to your high-risk strategy, which is ultimately, we'll go to the vote, and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll basically be able to sort of stay, maybe be able to stay in the EU. And I think you're right, if that withdrawal motion comes back on a really soft Brexit, it's going to... Div- It'll go through. It, well, and it, it may well do, but th- I would take that option rather than the high risk of, of another referendum. It will ruin the podcast. <laughs> 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 Nothing. Be- we'll just have to rebrand somehow. It'll, it'll become very, very, very bitter. <laughs> There'll be Romaniacs and then you will host soft Romaniacs. <laughs> Um, you're right. You're completely right. I yeah. think that the more allowances that are made, the more likely that thing is to pass. And that, that would just change everything. It's a really odd scenario. How nasty do we think things are going to get uh, with the Lords? Because now we've got the hilarious sight of the kind of uh, Tory that um, voted against reforming the Lords before <laughs> now suddenly crying out to abolish to yeah. abolish this kind of Farage came out as a unicameralist. Like, yeah, just don't don't even replace it with anything. Just get rid of it. <laughs> It's amazing <laughs> what you can do if you don't have principles <laughs> where you can just, you know, where you're not bothered by contradiction and you can just like plough on and go, well, we don't like the Lords now because they're not yeah. doing what we like. When we liked them when they were doing what we liked. Um, do you think anything will come of this or is it just like the usual bullshit for the media? I don't think it will because I don't think the, the Lords are going to push it right to the end. Um They've got the. Tr- I mean, I, I'm actually a bit unclear of, of exactly how the Parliament Act refers to this because it's being done over two sessions or whatever. But but putting that to one side, it's not just three times. They could potentially send it back three times. I don't think they're going to do that. I think their intention is you send this stuff back once because their position is: look, we are not deciding anything. We're opening up conversations for that we think the Commons should be having. That's mm. what they're doing with the vote. That's what we're doing with the customs union. That's what they're doing with the single market. I think if the Commons sends anything back, the Lords will stop. I think they're going to give in pretty much instantly. I think their thing is just the one go, here we go. My suspicion is anything that comes back to the Lords, they'll, they'll give in on. But then I didn't think last night's vote was going to pass, so I've been wrong before. We've got a totally anarchic parliament. I mean, you know, we've got governing parties split two ways two years after the vote. We've got a prime minister who continues to kick everything into the long grass. All these horrible public spats of cabinet ministers, you know, collective responsibility completely blown out of the water. In any normal time, Boris Johnson would have been sacked several times over. Mm. And an opposition party that's completely split between their Lords and the Commons, their leadership and many of their backbenchers and members. You know, our, our current democracy is a complete cluster. It's amazing that Owen Smith got shit-canned for um, saying, you know, I think we should have a people's vote. Mm. Uh, And Boris Johnson can call his Prime Minister's plan crazy. Yep. Uh, to which I noticed George Osborne in Evening Standard kicking back with the headline, Belt Up Boris, which you could basically have every day, day yeah. for the entirety of, of Boris Johnson's time in public life. Um, and yet she can't do anything. Like, no. it's a, it really is. It's like all the norms broken. It's astonishing that, 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 that so many people are staying in their jobs mm. when they shouldn't. Mm. Chief of them, I suppose, being Theresa May. It's just like, <laughs> I mean, you could not, you could not look weaker. No. 
Um, the, in, well, she can look weaker. And one of the ways in which you might do that is to just try and avoid these votes for as long as possible as they come back to the Commons. Mm. Now, that's a really, like, a really interesting logistical question. They wanted stuff back, I think, by the 27th of May. Certainly by, by the uh, Whitson <clears throat> recess or whatever fucking nonsense, archaic word it is that they use for it. Um, Spring break. Spring break. Yeah, exactly. That's, that <laughs> seems breakers. like a response. <laughs> they, they have to, by law, say it that way. Actually. Yeah, that's part of it. Um, now, she's obviously going to want to delay that. She's certainly going to want to delay the customs union vote until after Cabinet has decided which of her imaginary ideas it's going to endorse. That puts them in a weird position, of course, because the rest of what's in this bill is copying over all the EU laws and creating all these statutory instrument powers so that they can put them over. Now, that takes time. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they want to push that all the way back to autumn, which is uh, when the motion would be coming back on the entirety of the Brexit bill, she then needs to make a decision of how badly is it to get pulverised in the Commons on one hand versus not leaving enough time for us to be able to pass this stuff so that we can carry over the legislation mm-hmm. on the other. It is a massive logistical clusterfuck of epic proportions. Now, I'm, I, I mean, her cowardice will push her to delay I'm not sure how long that'll hold out, but I think she'll endeavour to demonstrate that there are ways in which she can make herself look weaker than she currently is. She never fails to disappoint. She does every hour. <laughs> she just disappoints over and over again. <laughs> I'm thinking of taking down the large portrait of her that I have on my wall. <laughs> I've had a letter from several academics ordering me to do so, and I think the time has come. Although, by the, could I just? But it's, it's actually it, that was one of those things that reminded me of something I actually quite like about her, which is that she didn't study PPE. Every time you read a biography of any politician, they're always like fucking PPE. They always study PPE at Oxbridge. Unless you're like, oh, you studied geography. At least that's like something mildly different. This is why you can only trust PPE people. You see, no, look what no, happens you really when you let the geography lot in. <laughs> you studied meanwhile, PPE, didn't you? Meanwhile, it seems that everyone lost the local elections, but everyone won too depending on who you're listening to. Labour increased its seats by 77, which is either their best showing in local elections since 1971, if you only count London, or an underwhelming performance in which the party failed to take a series of target councils from a clown car government. <laughs> the Tories dodged the pounding that they might have expected. The Lib Dems made gains, as did the Greens. And one thing that everyone could agree on was that UKIP were annihilated, and rightly so. But... Uh, as Caroline said earlier, it didn't seem to be much of a, a doorstep issue, um, except perhaps among my um, perhaps among my mates. But uh, Naomi, you've been monitoring this at Best for Britain. Uh, do, you, do you have a different analysis? I do. Um, uh, not actually from my work at Best for Britain, but before I left London first, I commissioned YouGov uh, to do some polling of Londoners um, ahead of the London elections to find out you know, what what issues people cared most about. And I was expecting housing to be the number one issue and I was hoping it would be because I ran a campaign called 50,000 Homes and that would have been really fucking useful. But no, no, no. Um, so this is all available on the London First website and presumably the YouGov website as well. But heading into the local elections, the issues that Londoners were um, most prepared to vote on or, you know, that was driving them when they were thinking about going into the ballot box was 44% of them Brexit, um, 39% NHS and 31% housing. So Brexit was sort of quite far ahead, actually, um, of health and housing. So certainly in London, in the London elections, people were thinking about Brexit when they went into the ballot box. But what about bins? And why is, Ian, explain this as a professional political journalist. Oh, shit. How did, why are bins the, the kind of synecdoche for all of, mm. these, uh, all of these kind of local issues? Are there, are, do journalists have particular problems with bins? I don't know. I always think, like, 
like when they talk about bins, it's just that's not tariffs. So I just don't pay any attention to it whatsoever. <laughs> like I, I presume people have terrible bin collection, but everything seems to work mm. out fine around mine. Mm. And because I have no power of empathy, I've just stopped concerning <laughs> myself about it. I do think that it was a pretty good night for Remain. Um, so if you look at the predictions from people like Rallings and Thrasher or whatever mm. the hell you pronounce that, Labour didn't do anywhere near as well as expected. So they ended up with, as you said, 77 seats um, as opposed to the 200 that was predicted. And they certainly didn't do as well as they should have in some of the London and remain strongholds. Uh, doubtless anti-Semitism will have hurt them in some areas, but I think there is certainly evidence that they are beginning to be very complacent about their remain vote and taking those voters for granted. The UK implosion, I think, has sort of artificially helped uh, the Tories save face. Um, they, although, you know, so they really didn't do so well either, if you, if you sort of think about it uh, in terms of the UK vote implosion as well. And the Lib Dems did much better than expected. But as you said, you know, so did the Greens. Um, and uh, when you consider where they were four years ago when it was much easier for them because you had the Lib Dems still in a Tory coalition government headed up by uh, an orange book liberal, so somebody on the, on the right of the party. Um, and this time they didn't have those conditions at all. They weren't nearly so toxic for the Lib Dems who have really tacked away from where they were uh, much closer to where the Greens now are. So all in all, I think it was a pretty positive night for the openly pro-Remain parties, the two openly pro-Remain parties. There's a real, the stalemate sort of, continues, isn't it? So you've got, obviously, the Tories with the small towns, Mm. Labour with the cities, and they seem stuck in that stalemate. But the stalemate also continues internally, I think. So for Labour, the the thing that pro-Brexit Labour guys always argue is, we can't make inroads into these small towns unless we change the policy on Brexit. The thing is, there's not enough evidence that if they did change the policy on Brexit, they would be able to make any inroads in those small towns, because so much of that vote, for instance, that UKIP transferral to the Tories, is also a cultural identity kind of vote, that they just don't think Labour will be on their side regardless of their economic policy. So everything just stays fixed in position, and the only movement I could see was UKIP's decline and the Lib Dem surge. No, but that's true, because because Labour seems to think that, that if, you know, that, that Leave voters, the thing that they care most about in the world is Labour's Brexit position. So as long as Labour continues to kind of signal that it's kind of, you know, it's on everybody's side, mm. you know, as if people don't notice that it's speaking out of both sides of its mouth, um, then, they will, then they will vote Labour. But the reasons people drifted away from Labour to, to UKIP and then have kind of gone via UKIP to the Tories is not because they were massive Eurosceptics. It's all this sort of other stuff. And it's like, well, unless you're going to pander to all the other things they like, which please God don't, mm. um, then Brexit alone is not going to keep those those sort of strongholds. So it seems like a flaw in that whole kind of, uh, that whole cautious strategy. And remember, they have pandered to it over and over again. Fucking Tony Blair and the Tony Blair, they barely talked about immigrants. They just talked about asylum seekers, the most appalling, poisonous mm. fucking slurs. Gordon Brown says, up says British jobs for British workers, a phrase that means absolutely fucking nothing and is an appalling thing to have come out of his mm, mouth. Mm. Ed Miliband, hapless little toy man that he is, oh, sorry, but a great podcast, that comes up with the, with the mug, you know, legitimate concerns about the blah, 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 and you just think, like, you know, every time they do the pandering, it makes zero difference in terms of getting those kind of yep. voters on side. It just takes people like us and just makes us think, well, what's the matter with you? Yeah, man? I mean, that's a, like, that, that, is a, that is a problem that goes way back through through all the all the leaders mm. you know for, for god knows how long this idea that it's just like let's get the racists on side and it's like well you know what you're never going to be as racist as the tories <laughs> you know ukip <laughs> you know or you can try, son, but you'll never <laughs> <laughs> you're, 
But what if I really tried hard, Dad? <laughs> no, son. They've been practising for so long. It's just, it's in their bones, racism. We really needed Peter here this week. I feel like it's on he, he may object to everything that just got yeah. said. Uh, not, not all Tories. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the collapse of UKIP, at least, I mean, is, is that just basically like the kind of, the, you know, the bee that delivers its sting and then, and then dies? Like, because it's not as if, for people who really like, or is it people who really like racism, uh, just have other places to go now? Because really, if you liked racism, sorry the Tories, but UKIP were like, you know. Well, you they, probably really liked Theresa May. You know, she was the architect of, of everything that we've seen going on in the Home Office in mm. the last month. So I'm sure they're very comfortable. Uh, where they are now. You know, it is worth re- remembering that the, the referendum turned out voters that don't normally vote um, and probably won't vote again. And this is my pitch yeah. to Labour MPs, right? You you probably have nothing to lose uh, from from uh, be- being overtly Remain. Um, and actually, you have quite a lot to lose if you stick with your current position. If, you, if, you're, if you're a Labour, leave, um, a Labour MP with, in a Leave constituency in the north of England and you've got 25,000 votes, 20,000 of them um, are Remainers and around 5,000 of them voted Leave. But when you analyse that Leave vote, it is incredibly soft and they really, really care about the kinds of issues that Labour are renowned for being strong on and they are very unlikely to ever make that leap over Do to you the this, There's an episode of Seinfeld in which George is so upset, he's got a girl, new girlfriend, but he's so obsessed with making Jerry's new girlfriend like him that he completely neglects his own girlfriend exactly. who dumps him and Jerry's girlfriend still hates him. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Labour might be George in this scenario. <laughs> We're coming to the end of the show, which means it's time to choose something to go in our Brexit time capsule where we save something for the future that we're going to miss or need if we leave the EU. Ian, it's your turn. What would you like to put in the Brexit time capsule? There was a form of social prejudice um, that I want to take back. Uh, And it's against portmanteaus. Fucking portmanteau, like Brexit. Basically, the the amalgamate, you know, when you put two words together and come up another one. Brangelina is fucking a pu- frenemy is obviously like one of, and Irexit, which doesn't even sound right on its own terms, is just it, like there is no good even brunch, which refers to something that I'm really frankly very fond of, <laughs> is still not a good one. It's different when you get compound words like Walkman or whatever that that still has like a little bit of sort of resonance to it. But the portmanteaus can fuck off and die. And Brexit has opened them up in a way that you would never believe. Suddenly they're absolutely everywhere, and I think that that actually would be in my top five worst things that this referendum has, has done to our country. Chexit is good, though. Chexit, what is, oh, is that for the Czech? The Czech Republic. It's not good. It's, none of che- them are good. No, why Wait, why che- can't so we just say... It. Ian. <laughs> say it. <laughs> it Ian, are you, are you kind of slagging off the whole name of this podcast, then? Re- oh, shitballs. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I hadn't noticed that. Well, but, you know, it's an ironic name. We can get away with that. We're being terribly clever. <laughs> well, that brings us to the end of the show. Thanks, Naomi and Ian. They're terribly clever. We'll see you next time. For our European language clip, here's another of our rock and roll Romaniacs with a bit of Welsh. It's Peridua Ap Gwyneth of the drum and bass band Pendulum. Now, please be upstanding for Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the roll call of thanks to our Patreon backers. Uh, thanks from me to Damien Gormley, Thomas Harrow, Sue Evans, Tiger, Tiger, one of the two, and Steve Rascoria. 
Hello and thanks from me to Matthew Cooper, Alex Rushforth, Matthew Evans, Eamon Clark and Michelle O'Shea. And finally, thanks from me to William Paul, Susan Shylon, Werner N., 80s German pop star, Judith Downey and Andrew Young. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Densky with Naomi Smith and Ian Dunt. The producer was me, Andrew Harrison. Studio production was by Sophie Black. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production.